Hi there, and welcome to our podcast. And this week at London Visited, we go back to 10 Downing Street for our second and final part on this place. In the first part, we looked at the history of the building. And in this podcast, we look at more up-to-date history from 1960 onwards. Plus, we look at some of the famous parts of the building. My name is Steve, and each week I'll bring to you the facts, history, and information about different parts of this great capital. If you've been to London, planning on visiting, live here, or just love London from afar, then this is the podcast for you. Also, don't forget our YouTube channel, London Visited, to see videos covering so many places across this great capital, London. And now, to this week's podcast. By the middle of the 20th century, number 10 was falling apart again. The deterioration had been obvious for some time. The number of people allowed in the upper floors was limited for the fear of bearing walls would collapse. The staircase had sunk several inches. Some steps were buckled and the balustrade was out of alignment. Dry rot was widespread throughout. The interior wood in the cabinet room's double columns was like sawdust. Skirting boards, doors, sills and other woodwork were riddled and weakened with disease. After reconstruction had begun, miners dug down to the foundations and found that the huge wooden beams supporting the house had decayed. In 1958, a committee under the chairmanship of the Earl of Crawford and Balcaries was appointed by Harold Macmillan to investigate the condition of the house and make recommendations. In the committee's report, there was some discussion of tearing down the building and constructing an entirely new residence. But because the Prime Minister's home had become an icon of British architecture, like Windsor Castle, Buckingham Palace and the Houses of Parliament, the committee recommended that number 10 and numbers 11 and 12 should be rebuilt using as much of the original materials as possible. The interior would be photographed, measured, disassembled and restored. A new foundation with deep pilings would be laid and the original buildings assembled on top of it, allowing for much needed expansion and modernization. Any original materials that were beyond repair, such as a pair of double columns in the cabinet room, would be replicated in detail. This was a formidable undertaking. The three buildings contained over 200 rooms spread out over five floors. The architect, Raymond Erith, carried out the design for this painstaking work, and the contractor that undertook him was John Molum & Co. The Times reported initially that the cost for the project would be £400,000, and after more careful studies were completed, it was concluded that the total cost was likely to be one and a quarter million pounds and would take two years to complete. In the end, the cost was close to three million pounds and took almost three years, due in large part to 14 labour strikes. There were also delays when archaeological excavations uncovered important artefacts, dating from Roman, Saxon and medieval times. Macmillan lived in Admiralty House during the reconstruction. The new foundation was made of steel reinforced concrete with piling sunk 6 to 18 feet. The new number 10 consisted of about 60% new materials. The remaining 40% was either restored or replicas of originals. Many rooms and sections of the new building were reconstructed exactly as they were in the old number 10. These included the ground floor, the door and entrance foyer, the stairway, the hallway to the cabinet room, the cabinet room, the garden and terrace, the small and large state rooms, and the three reception rooms. The staircase, however, was rebuilt and simplified. Steel was hidden inside the columns in the pillared drawing room to support the floor above. The upper floors were modernized and the third floor extended over numbers 11 and 12 to allow more living space. As many as 40 coats of paint were stripped away from the elaborate cornices in the main rooms, revealing details unseen for almost 200 years in some cases. When builders examined the exterior facade, 
they discovered that the black colour visible, even in photographs from the mid-19th century, was misleading. The bricks were actually yellow. The black appearance was the product of two centuries of pollution. To preserve the traditional look of recent times, the newly cleaned yellow bricks were painted black to resemble their well-known appearance. The thin, tuck-pointing mortar between the bricks is not painted, so this contrasts with the bricks. Although the reconstruction was generally considered an architectural triumph, Erith was disappointed. He complained openly during and after the project that the government had altered his design to save money. Erith described the numbers on the front, intended to be based on historical models, as a mess and completely wrong to a fellow historian. I am heartbroken by the result, he said. The whole project has been a frightful waste of money because it just has not been done properly. The Ministry of Works has insisted on economy after economy. I am bitterly disappointed with what has happened. Iris concerns proved justified. Within a few years, dry rot was discovered, especially in the main rooms due to inadequate waterproofing and a broken water pipe. Extensive reconstruction again had to be undertaken in the late 1960s to resolve these problems. Further extensive repairs and remodeling, commissioned by Margaret Thatcher, were completed in the 1980s under the direction of Erith's associate, Quinlan Terry. The work done by Erith and Terry in the 1960s and 1980s represents the most extensive remodeling of Number 10 in recent times. During 1990, when the Terry reconstruction was completed, repairing, redecorating, remodeling, and updating the house has been ongoing as needed. The IRA mortar attack in February 1991 led to extensive work being done to repair the damage, mostly to the garden and exterior walls, and to improve security. In the summer of 1993, windows were rebuilt, and in 1995, computer cables installed. In 1997, the building was remodeled to provide extra space for the Prime Minister's greatly increased staff. To accommodate their large families, both Tony Blair and David Cameron chose to live in the private residence above number 11, rather than the small one above number 10. In 2010, the Camerons completely modernised the 50-year-old private kitchen in number 11. The current tenants of 10 Downing Street are the First Lord of the Treasury, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. It currently houses the UK Cabinet Room, in which Cabinet meetings in the UK take place, chaired by the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. It also houses the Prime Minister's Executive Office, which deals with logistics and diplomacy concerning the government of the UK. Number 10's door is the product of renovations, Charles Townsend ordered in 1766. It was probably not completed until 1772. Executed in the Georgian style by the architect Kenton Course, it is unassuming and narrow, consisting of a single white stone step leading to a modest brick front. The small, six-panel door, originally made of black oak, is surrounded by cream-coloured casing and adorned with semicircular fanlight window. Painted in white between the top and the middle sets of the panels is the number 10. The zero of the number 10 is painted in a very eccentric style. It is a 37-degree angle anti-clockwise. One theory is that this is in fact a capital O, as found in the Roman Trojan alphabet that was used by the Ministry of Works at the time. A black iron knocker in the shape of a lion's head is between the two middle panels. Below the knocker is a brass letterbox with the inscription, First Lord of the Treasury. The doorbell is inscribed with push, although it's rarely used in practice. A black ironwork fence with spiked newel posts runs along the front of the house and up each side of the step to the door. The fence rises above the step to the double-swirled archway, supporting an iron gas lamp surmounted by a crown. 
After the IRA mortar attack in 1991, the original black oak door was replaced by a blast-proof steel one. Regularly removed for refurbishment and replaced with a replica, it is so heavy that it takes eight men to lift it. The brass letterbox still bears the legend, First Lord of the Treasury. The original door was put on display in the Churchill Museum at the Cabinet War Rooms. The door cannot be opened from outside. There is always someone inside to unlock the door. Beyond the door, Corse installed black and white marble tiles in the entrance hall that are still in use. A guard's chair, designed by Chippendale, sits in one corner. Once used when policemen sat on watch outside in the street, it has an unusual hood designed to protect them from the wind and cold and draw underneath, where hot coals were placed to provide warmth. Scratches on the right arm were caused by their pistols rubbing against the leather. Number 10 Downing Street has a lift. Cause also added a bow front to the small cottage, formerly Mr. Chicken's house, incorporated into Number 10 in Walpole's time. The Main Staircase When William Kent rebuilt the interior between 1732 and 1734, his craftsmanship created a stone triple staircase. The main section had no visible supports, with a wrought iron balustrade, embellished with a scroll design and mahogany handrail. It rises from the garden floor to the third floor. Kent's staircase is the first architectural feature visitors see as they enter number 10. Black and white engravings and photographs of all the past prime ministers decorate the wall. They are rearranged slightly to make room for a photograph of each new prime minister. There is one exception. Winston Churchill is represented in two photographs. At the bottom of the staircase are a group of photos of prime ministers and their cabinet ministers and representatives to imperial conferences. The Cabinet Room In Kent's design for the enlarged number 10, the cabinet room was a simple rectangular space with enormous windows. As part of the renovations begun in 1783, it was extended, giving the space its modern appearance. Probably not completed until 1796, this alteration was achieved by removing the east wall and rebuilding it several feet inside the adjoining secretary's room. At the entrance, a screen of two pairs of Corinthian columns was erected to carry the extra span of the ceiling, supporting a moulded entablature that wraps around the room. Robert Taylor, the architect who executed this concept, was knighted on its completion. The resulting small space, framed by the pillars, serves as an anteroom to the larger area. Hendrik Dickart's painting, The Palace of Whitehall, usually hangs in the anteroom. It also contains two large bookcases that house the Prime Minister's library. Cabinet members traditionally donate to the collection on leaving office, a tradition that began with Ramsay MacDonald in 1931. Although Kent intended the First Lord to use this space as his study, it has rarely served that purpose. It has almost always been the cabinet room. There have been few exceptions. Stanley Baldwin used the cabinet room as his office. A few prime ministers, such as Tony Blair, occasionally worked at the cabinet room table. Painted off-white with large floor-to-ceiling windows along one of the long walls, the room is light and airy. Three brass chandeliers hang from the high ceiling. The cabinet table, purchased during the Gladstone era, dominates the room. The modern boat-shaped top, introduced by Harold Macmillan in the late 1950s, is supported by huge original oak legs. The table is surrounded by carved, solid mahogany chairs that also date back from the Gladstone era. The Prime Minister's chair, the only one with arms, is situated midway along one side in front of the marble fireplace, facing the windows. When not in use, it is positioned at an angle for easy access. The only picture in the room is a copy of a portrait of Sir Robert Walpole by Jean Baptiste Van Loo, hanging over the fireplace. Each cabinet member is allocated a chair based in order of seniority. 
lot is inscribed with their titles mark their places. The first lord has no designated office space in number 10. Each has chosen one of the adjoining rooms as his or her private office. The State Drawing Rooms Number 10 has three interlinked state drawing rooms, the Pillar Drawing Room, the Terracotta Drawing Room, and the White Drawing Room. Pillared State Drawing Room The largest is the Pillared Room, thought to have been created in 1796 by Taylor. Measuring 37 feet long by 28 feet wide, it takes its name from the twin iconic pillars, with straight pediments at one end. Today, there is a portrait of Queen Elizabeth I over the fireplace, during the Thatcher Ministry, 1979-1990. A portrait of William Pitt by Romney was hung there. A Persian carpet covers almost the entire floor, a copy of a 16th century original now kept in the Victorian Albert Museum. There is an inscription woven into it that reads, I have no refuge in the world other than thy threshold. My head has no protection other than this porchway. The work of a slave of the holy place, Masud of Kashan, in the year 926. He has Lamic gear corresponding to 1520. The restoration conducted in the late 1980s, Quinlan Terry restored the fireplace. Executed in the Kentian style, the small ionic pillars over the mantel are miniature duplicates of the large pillars in the room. The ionic motif is also found in the door surrounds and panelling. Sparsely furnished with a few chairs and sofas around the walls, the pillared room is usually used to receive guests before they go to the state dining room. However, it is sometimes used for other purposes that require a large open space. International agreements have been signed in this room. Tony Blair entertained the England rugby union team in the pillared room after they won the World Cup in 2003. John Logie Baird gave Ramsay MacDonald a demonstration of his invention, the television, in this room. The Terracotta State Drawing Room The Terracotta Room is in the middle of the three drawing rooms. It was used as the dining room when Sir Robert Walpole was Prime Minister. The name changes according to the colour it is painted. When Margaret Thatcher came to power, it was the Blue Room. She had it redecorated and renamed the Green Room. It is now painted Terracotta. In the renovation of the 1980s, Quinlan Terry introduced large Doric order columns to this room in the door surrounds and designed a very large Palladian overmantel for the fireplace with small double Doric columns on each side with the royal arms above. Terry also added an ornate gilded ceiling to give the rooms a more stately look. Carved into the plasterwork above the door leading to the pillared room is a tribute to Margaret Thatcher, a straw-carrying Thatcher. White State Drawing Room the White State Drawing Room was, until the 1940s, used by Prime Ministers and their partners for their private use. It was here that Edward Heath kept his grand piano. It is often used as the backdrop for television interviews and is in regular use as a meeting room for Downing Street staff. The room links through to the Terracotta Room next door. In the reconstruction during the late 1980s, Quinlan Terry used Corinthian columns and added an ornate Baroque-style central ceiling mouldings and corner mouldings of the four national flowers of the United Kingdom – Rose for England, Thistle for Scotland, Daffodil for Wales, and Shamrock for Northern Ireland. The State Dining Room When Frederick Robinson, later Lord Goodrich, became Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1823, he decided to leave a personal legacy to the nation. To this end, he employed Sir John Soane, the distinguished architect who had designed the Bank of England and many other famous buildings, to build a state dining room for Number 10. Begun in 1825 and completed in 1826 at a cost of £2,000, the result is a spacious room with oak panelling and reeded mountings. Access through the first floor, its vaulted arch ceiling 
rises up through the next, so that it actually occupies two floors. Measuring 42 feet by 26 feet, it is the largest room in number 10. Soane was the guest of honour when the dining room was first used on the 4th of April 1826. The room is usually furnished with a table surrounded by 20 reproduction Adams-style chairs, originally made for the British Embassy in Rio de Janeiro. For larger gatherings, a horseshoe-shaped table is brought in that will accommodate up to 65 guests. On these occasions, the table is set with silver trust silver, given to Downing Street in the 1990s. Above the fireplace, overlooking the room, is a massive portrait by John Shackleton of George II, the king who originally gave the building to the first Lord of the Treasury in 1732. Celebrity chefs such as Nigella Lawson have cooked for Prime Minister's guests using the small kitchen next door. Entering through the small dining room, Blair used this room for his monthly press conferences. The great kitchen located in the basement was another part of renovations began in 1783, probably under the direction of Robert Taylor. Seldom seen by anyone other than staff, the space is two stories high with a huge arched window and vaulted ceiling. Traditionally, it has always had a chopping block work table in the center that is 14 feet long, three feet wide and five inches thick. Above Taylor's vaulted kitchen between the pillared room and the state dining room, Soane created a smaller dining room, sometimes called the breakfast room, that still exists. To build it, Soane removed the chimney from the kitchen and put a door in the room. He then moved the chimney to the east side, running a Y-shaped split flue inside the walls, up either side of one of the windows above. The room, therefore, has a unique architectural feature. Over the fireplace there is a window, instead of the usual chimney breast. With its flat, unadorned ceiling, simple mouldings and deep window seats, the small dining room is intimate and comfortable. Usually furnished with a mahogany table seating only eight, Prime Ministers often use this room when dining with family or when entertaining special guests on more personal state occasions. The terrace and garden were constructed in 1736, shortly after Walpole moved into number 10. The terrace, extending across the back, provides a full view of St James's Park. The garden is dominated by a half-acre open lawn which wraps around numbers 10 and 11 in an L-shape. No longer fitted with variety well fruit and diverse fruit trees as it was in the 17th century, there is now a centrally located flower bed around a holly tree surrounded by seats. Tubs of flowers line the steps from the terrace. Around the walls are rose beds with flowering and evergreen shrubs. The terrace and garden have provided a casual setting for many gatherings of first lords with foreign dignitaries, cabinet ministers, guests and staff. Prime Minister Tony Blair, for example, hosted a farewell reception in 2007 for his staff on the terrace. John Major announced his 1995 resignation as leader of the Conservative Party in the garden. Churchill called his secretaries the Garden Girls because their offices overlooked to the garden. It was also the location of the first press conference announcing the coalition government between David Cameron's Conservatives and Nick Clegg's Liberal Democrats. Furnishings Number 10 is filled with fine paintings, sculptures, busts and furniture. Only a few are permanent features. Most are on loan. About half belong to the government art collection. The remainder are on loan from private collectors and from public galleries such as the National Portrait Gallery, the Tate Gallery, the Victorian Albert Museum and the National Gallery. About a dozen paintings are changed annually. More extensive changes occur when a new Prime Minister takes office and redecorates. These redecorations may reflect both individual taste as well as make a political statement. Edward Heath 
borrowed French paintings from the National Gallery and was loaned two Renoirs from a private collector. When Margaret Thatcher arrived in 1979, she insisted the artwork had to be British and it celebrated British achievers. As a former chemist, she took pleasure in devoting a small dining room to a collection of portraits of British scientists, such as Joseph Priestley and Humphrey Davy. During the 1990s, John Major converted the first floor anteroom into a small gallery of modern art, mostly British. He also introduced several paintings by John Constable and J.M.W. Turner, Britain's two best-known 19th-century artists, and cricketing paintings by Archibald Stuart Wortley, including a portrait of one of England's most celebrated batsmen, W.G. Grace. In addition to outstanding artwork, Number 10 contains many exceptional pieces of furniture, either owned by the house or on loan. One of the most striking and unusual is the Chippendale hooded guard's chair, already mentioned, that sits in the corner of the entrance hall. To its left is a long case clock by Benson of Whitehaven. A similar clock by Samuel Witchcote of London stands in the cabinet anteroom. The white state drawing room contains examples of Adam's furniture. The green state drawing room contains mostly Chippendale furniture, including a card table that belonged to Clive of India and a mahogany desk that is thought to have belonged to William Pitt the Younger and used by him during the Napoleonic Wars. In addition to the large carpet previously described, the pillared state drawing room also contains a marble top table by Kent. The state dining room contains a mahogany sideboard by Adam. Until the late 19th century, Prime Ministers were required to furnish number 10 at their own expense, with furniture, tableware, china, linens, curtains and decorations. This arrangement began to change in 1877 when Benjamin Disraeli took up residency. He insisted the Treasury should bear the cost of furnishings, at least in the public areas. The Treasury agreed and a complex accounting procedure was developed, whereby the outgoing Prime Minister was required to pay for wear and tear on furnishings that had been purchased by the Treasury. This system was used until November 1897, when the Treasury assumed responsibility for purchasing and maintaining almost all of the furnishings in both public and private areas, except decorating the walls with artwork. In 1924, when Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald took office, he did not own nor have the means to buy an extensive art collection. He had the government art collection loan pieces. The arrangement became the standard practice. In 1985, number 10 was 250 years old. To celebrate, Thatcher hosted a grand dinner in the state dining room for her living predecessors, Harold Macmillan, Alec Douglas Hume, Harold Wilson, Edward Heath and James Callahan. Also in attendance were Elizabeth II and representatives of the families of every 20th century Prime Minister, since H. H. Asquith, including Lady Olwyn Curry-Jones, daughter of David Lloyd George, Lady Leona Howard, daughter of Stanley Baldwin, and Clarissa Avon, widow of Sir Anthony Eden and niece of Winston Churchill. That same year, the Leisure Circle published Christopher Jones' book, Number 10 Downing Street, The Story of a House. In the foreword, Thatcher described her feelings for Number 10, how much I wish that the public could share with me the feeling of Britain's historic greatness which provides every nook and cranny of this complicated and meandering old building. All Prime Ministers are intensely aware that, as tenants and stewards of Number 10 Downing Street, they have in their charge one of the most precious jewels in the nation's heritage. The Prime Minister's office, for which the terms Downing Street and Number 10 are metonymous, lies within the 10 Downing Street building and is part of the Cabinet Office. It is staffed by a mix of career civil servants and special advisers, the highest-ranking civil servant position is the principal private secretary to the Prime Minister. 
So I hope you've enjoyed it. I'll look at number 10 Downing Street and its history over 280 plus years. It's incredible to think of the number of renovations and actually the complete screw up at the end in the way it was built and its foundations. Whatever podcast service you use to listen to this, please do subscribe to get updates on new shows and also please leave us some feedback. Also, let me know any places you'd like us to feature in future podcasts. And you can let me know through our website, www.londonvisited.co.uk. You can email me directly on londonvisited at gmail.com or you can contact us on Twitter and Instagram at londonvisited. Thanks for listening. Really hope you've enjoyed our two-part podcast on 10 Downing Street and we'll see you soon for the next podcast on London. Take care. See you soon. Bye.